This episode of Mayo Clinic Talks is brought to you by National Dairy Council. Since 1915, National Dairy Council is dedicated to research and education of dairy foods. As a nonprofit organization founded by dairy farmers, National Dairy Council is committed to providing science-based education on dairy's nutritional benefits for health and wellness. Learn more at usdairy.com backslash National Dairy Council. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Chronic disease is creating a tremendous financial impact on our healthcare system. Cardiovascular disease alone accounts for approximately 18 million deaths globally every year. Most often, we think of pharmacologic therapy in managing these patients. Yet there's good evidence that shows adults who eat a healthy diet have a lower risk of suffering from a variety of chronic diseases. Diet can play an extremely important role in preventing and managing such conditions as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, osteoporosis, and even some malignancies. Today's podcast will review the role of nutrition in lowering the risk of chronic disease, and our guest is registered dietitian and nutritionist Catherine Zaratsky from the Division of Endocrinology at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Kate, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Daryl. It's good to be here. Well, let's start. I'm going to ask you to tell me how does diet affect chronic disease? What does what we eat have any effect on our diseases? I think it has a a large effect. I think if we go back to the old saying of we are what we eat, Mm -hmm. that might be fair in this context. Granted, we know there's other factors, but diet is a large and contributing one to our overall health and the prevention or management of chronic diseases. So can we use our diet? to influence developing chronic disease? Certainly. I think as we think of our diet as the foundation, as you said, there are pharmacological approaches and sometimes those are needed. But if we think of just that basic foundation to our health, our diet, what we eat, how much we eat, within what we eat, the types of foods, whether they're more whole or wholesome types versus more processed foods, the nutrients that we get from those wholesome foods versus the nutrients that we may or may not get from our uh, processed foods can play a large effect in the balance of minerals in our body that may positively or negatively impact the development of or progression of some of these diseases. And as you mentioned, cardiovascular disease is is one of the main ones. I think when we think of diet overall, in terms of all impacts on chronic disease, in terms of mortality and morbidity, it's the leading cause of reduction in the quality of our years of life and the leading cause of death over all other factors. So we're looking at upwards of 11 million premature deaths as it relates to diet. So let's talk about the typical American diet. What are we eating wrong other than probably too much, but what else are we doing wrong? Well, I think when we think of the typical American diet, 
there's a few things that stand out. I think overall, we don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. And that's one of the markers of when we think of the quality of our diets. And so when we eat more fruits and vegetables, it seems to also offset kind of the other types of foods that we might consume. So overall, when we look at the American diet, most Americans are consuming very few fruits and very few vegetables. I think it's one in 10 men and one in five women actually meet the recommendations for fruit and vegetable intake. And so we have room for improvement, but it is a major contributor to the quality and in this case, the low quality of the American diet. And so when we look at kind of the other constitutes of the American diet that might be, say, harmful, on any given day, over half of Americans, about 55% of Americans are eating restaurant-type food, which often leads to more calories consumed, higher sodium intakes, higher saturated fat intakes. So we think about those things and their impact on chronic disease in terms of weight-related diseases, cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, all of those things. And so restaurant foods, large portions, high calories, high in sodium, high in saturated fats. So we'd be served, again, more wholesome homemade foods in our diets. And then I think another major contributor that we see, again, about two-thirds of Americans are consuming sweets, mainly in the form of baked goods and candies on any given day. That, again, is we're looking upwards of you know close to 200 or more calories a day coming from these foods, which, again, not just calories, it's the saturated fat, it's the salt in baked goods, just the added sugars. So then we start thinking, you know, we've now we've added added sugars into the equation and added sugars, you can think of sure empty calories or calories without a whole lot of nutrition attached, but then we also think about could it be inflammatory and some of those inflammatory chronic diseases. And so that becomes a concern. If we look at other cultures who have different diets than those in the United States, can we see any evidence that by eating the way they do, there's a lower risk for uh, developing chronic disease? I think we can. I think one of the major areas of the world we can look to is, is the Mediterranean region, because we know that there's good data out of that region to say when you eat that style, live that type of lifestyle, there tends to be a decrease not only in cardiovascular disease, but many other things in terms of improving cognitive health, perhaps bone health, and you think of some of, again, the inflammatory diseases like arthritis might be impacted by eating more of a Mediterranean type of diet, which in an essence is a more plant-based diet. So looking at fruit, vegetables, whole grains, healthy fats from I think mainly we think of olive oil, but healthy fats can come from fish, nuts, seeds, and those are all part of that style of eating. And I think that diet is also lower in added sugars as well. So, and then I think even looking to other regions of the world, including some even here in the United States, when we look at areas that tend to eat more beans and lentils and I guess if we included lifestyle, those people who do a lot of walking from observational studies, we see that, again, 
not just longevity, but quality of life, it seems to improve. And then I think, you know, even just looking to some of the Asian countries where maybe more soy foods are consumed, you know, there's often questions around should I or shouldn't I have soy, but there's some data there to suggest that, yes, even including soy from, you know, and especially in women in their teen years or younger years seems to be have a protective effect against breast cancer. And so I think when we start thinking of, again, plant foods and a plant-based diet in terms of, again, most cancers, it's thought to be preventative. Well, if we look at diet as a risk factor for chronic disease, how does it compare to the other risk factors such as one's genetics or their environmental exposures or some other unhealthy behaviors, tobacco use, lack of exercise and so forth? Where does it fit in importance compared to those other things? It's tip top. (laughs) So your diet, what you eat really is amongst, I guess when we look at the data from the standpoint of influences, again, in terms of premature death and the comorbidities that we might live with as we age. From that perspective, diet seems to be the most important. Now, when it comes to genetics, we all know our genetics are given to us. We can't necessarily change them. However, there is evidence to support that diet can influence, say, the expression of some of those genes. And so, higher intakes of fruits and vegetables seem to improve or prevent some of those chronic diseases. And then I think when we think of some of the other things like tobacco use, you know, smoking or tobacco use in general, that's probably maybe next on the list in terms of premature death. And then you think of environmental exposures like air pollution, quality of air inside and out of one's home. That's probably, I think, number three. And again, we're talking in the dietary category, like millions. You know, like I said, diet seems to be up upwards of 11 million. But that can even be broken down into what, if we look at just fruit intake, vegetable intake, and we can actually fruit being the highest. If if people would eat more fruit, it's almost five million premature deaths are associated with low fruit intake. So. Okay. Well, as I was preparing for this, I always end up doing a lot of reading. And, you know, I, certainly there are many diseases I know are related to diet. So we'll talk about those. But there were some I was kind of surprised. So let's start with some of the more obvious ones. What's important in the components of diet in preventing or managing, say, cardiovascular disease? Sure. Well, again, going back to our data that we have from, say, Mediterranean diet trials and those related. And I think within that, I think we need to also think about not just Mediterranean, but I call it the American version of the Mediterranean, which is the DASH diet, which is the dietary approaches to stop hypertension. And both diets are similar and they're plant-based. And so looking at a focus of fruits, vegetables, whole grains. So again, healthy fats in the form of plant oils, not necessarily the tropical oils. We do see with the saturated fats that come from tropical oils, there is a rise in some of the blood lipid levels. And so we still do say limit those as we would with any saturated fat. 
I think other things, again, the healthy fats, nuts and seeds. And that's actually a focus of the DASH diet is the inclusion of nuts and seeds. It's recognizing the importance of those. Um, and whole grains, of course, and the Mediterranean diet puts a little more emphasis on fish or fatty fish from that perspective. I think where we see maybe a slight difference is the DASH diet will say limit overall meat consumption. Uh, the Mediterranean diet will say, I guess, limit, but choose fish first, and then mm -hmm. maybe some lean poultry and limit the red and red and processed meats. And I think that's one important point when I think when we think of heart health overall, the reducing the intake of processed meats, not only again from like maybe perhaps a quality standpoint, but the the amount of sodium. And I think the reduction of sodium overall is important for blood pressure and overall cardiac health. So I think in terms of cardiac health, I think if we look at again just more wholesome foods, mm -hmm. plant based, less salt, those are kind of the big hitters. But not to say that. There aren't many, you know, again, healthy fats. There's many components and I think many opportunities for people to improve their, their heart health. At least two or three decades ago, there was a push to use polyunsaturated fats. And now there's more towards olive oil, monosaturated fats. Is What's the difference? Are they, is one as good as the other? Is one better than the other? Well, I think when it comes to fats, you know, overall, our choices in terms of unsaturated fats versus saturated fats mm -hmm. is I think the first step. And so unsaturated fats mainly come from our plant sources, oils, oils from foods, nuts, seeds, things mm -hmm. like that. Whereas saturated fats tend to come from more animal-based products. So your meat, high fat dairy products, things like those. So saturated fats are, again, just as a a visual, our thought, you know, those are the ones that are solid at room temperature. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, you know, when talking to patients, that can be an important visual to think, oh gosh, if it's solid at room temperature, I don't want it solid inside of me. <laughs> so yeah. it can kind of make that um, meaningful to them. In terms of uh, the unsaturated fats, like again, I think the swap is the important part. So less saturated, more unsaturated. And then I think, you know, looking at there's there's likely health benefits from both. I think when we look at, say, some of the monounsaturated fats, those are more your olive oils and some of your plant fats, whereas your polyunsaturated fats are coming more from like your fish oils mm -hmm. and some of your nuts and, and your seeds, particularly like your walnuts, your chia and your flax seeds. And so I think we can say that they both have a role. I think a lot of the research points that it's probably that switch of reduction in the saturated fat. So the reduction in, in the butter and the solid fats to the unsaturated fats, you know, and whether it be the mono or the poly, I think they both play a role. I think there's a bit of controversy over some vegetable oils and say the omega-3 versus omega-6 and is high vegetable intake, is it really as beneficial as we think? But I think overall, I think we see the biggest benefit just make the switch from saturated to unsaturated. Okay. Let's talk about diabetes. What should we do with our diet if we have diabetes? I think when it comes to diabetes, it's looking at the quality of our diet. There's so much controversy and confusion around carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And I think the message needs to be quality of carbohydrates. Your fruits, your whole grains, include some vegetables. 
because fiber is important when it comes to blood glucose management. So wholesome foods to nourish your body and fiber to help with that blood glucose management. And I think too, it goes back to, to if we're eating more wholesome foods and fiber, those are very fruits, vegetables with a high water content as well as a high fiber content, help control hunger and likely portions of other foods. So you can likely see an impact on weight. So then you can impact, say, insulin resistance. And so I think overall, we see kind of multiple benefits from just the fact of eating higher quality foods. Also, I think, you know, just the reduction of sodium, again, I'll, I'll, you know, thinking again, quality, less processed foods, in terms of just being kind to the kidneys, which when you're managing any type of diabetes, type one or type two, you want to think about prevention and keeping your kidneys and, and all your other organ systems in your eyes and your blood vessels happy and healthy. So okay. osteoporosis becoming a big national health problem. Yeah. What, how does diet influence that? How can we prevent osteoporosis and does diet still help in its management? Sure. You know, and I, when you actually, when I, I looked at some NHANES data, just, I just wanted to see how, if there had been any recent kind of assessment of calcium intake in the U.S. population. And, and the data I found is is a little bit older. But what it it points to is the fact that overall calcium intake is around 1,000 milligrams, which for most people, mm. that's what we're looking for. However, the intake of dairy is around one and a half servings per day. So I wonder where the other calcium is coming from in people's eyes. Is it fortified foods? We don't eat enough vegetables, so I know it's not likely coming from broccoli. We don't generally eat enough nuts and seeds, so I know it's not coming from almonds. So I'm just wondering kind of how the, that data matches. But again, I think it speaks to, you know, when we think about osteoporosis and some key nutrients, again, key foods. We talked about high-fat dairy, but that doesn't mean there isn't a place for low-fat dairy, just in terms of calorie control. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, dairy and calcium intake, it's just an easy way for many people to get their calcium in. Now, if they choose not to have dairy because they have a sensitivity or another way, I think we do have to be creative because getting your calcium from plants is just more difficult because it, it takes a little more attention. I think the other key nutrients when we talk about osteoporosis are vitamin D. And I think mm -hmm. we see, again, a large part of our population tends to have a low vitamin D status. And so I think whether you live in a warm climate or a cold climate, it doesn't seem to matter. So there needs to be some attention to vitamin D. And there aren't a lot of food sources of vitamin D. It's naturally really only in things like some fish and mushrooms who are, that are exposed to ultraviolet light. And so it has to come from some fortified foods. And generally, those are dairy products. I think another nutrient we often don't think of with osteoporosis is vitamin K. And vitamin K plays a role in, say, the kind of the bone breakdown and reformation. And so again, when we think of where we get vitamin K in our diet, leafy greens are green yep. vegetables. So again, yep. pointing toward that plant base can be really beneficial in terms of osteoporosis. And I think again, bringing in that lifestyle component, walking, yep. weight bearing exercise, you know, so putting those two things together. And what I understand about bone health 
is that once we reach an age of our early 20s, we start seeing a decline in our bone mineral density. So it's best if we can push that peak as high as possible. And I, my understanding is that takes place early in our adult life and early in childhood to uh, get the nutrients that we need, the calcium, the vitamin D, the exercise to get that peak as high as possible because it's going to go down. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you for saying that because it puts an emphasis, I think, on childhood and young adult nutrition, mm -hmm. which again, we see just as an adult, there's a struggle for good, wholesome foods and less processed foods there. And if it's dairy products or another source of, of calcium in one's diet, really to push in those early years, that peak bone formation and oftentimes what I'll, when I'm talking to patients, an analogy or a comparison that I'll use for them is think of your bones as a bank because your body very tightly regulates your calcium levels. Because I think I have a lot of patients say, oh, my calcium was checked. It's fine. Mm -hmm. And I actually, and I <laughs> well, your body is going to keep it fine because you need calcium for muscle contraction in your heart's a big muscle. So we need, <laughs> need to keep it all fine. But to do that, think of your bones as a bank, because that's your repository of calcium. So your body will go to your bones and take the calcium out, make a withdrawal. Yeah. And in many um, cases, uh, some patients, bone calcium is overdrawn. Yeah. They don't have enough in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, those are the common ones that I knew diet had an effect on. Malignancy. I was kind of surprised to see this. How does diet influence malignancy? When we think about many cancers, again, there appears to be a, an association, a link to a plant-based diet and the prevention of cancers. And then I, I think we also think about reoccurrence. And that's, again, almost like a secondary preventative measure. And a plant-based diet does seem to be an effective way that want someone can take or manage their own risk in this type of situation. When we think about some of the things we've talked about already and just in terms of fiber, so we think of just like colon, you know, digestive tract, colon health, you know, having adequate fiber intake is important. It, not just probably from just the the effects of just the immediate tissue, but just even thinking about the emerging science of gut health in terms of the microbiome. And there's, I think, interest in the scientific community about what role that those bacteria play in terms of gut health, colon cancer, or the development of, of cancer. So I think maintaining a, a healthy microbiome mm -hmm. is important and diet obviously affects that. Also, I think the idea of just antioxidants, because our bodies are constantly exposed to oxidation and, and there's always that cycle of damage and repair and keeping our, our cells healthy. And, and so from, again, the perspective of plants and healthy fats from nuts and seeds and olive oils and fatty fish, it, those protective or restorative type nutrients or plant compounds are likely playing a role in terms of just our overall cell health. And so probably all cancers can be impacted by your diet from that. Okay. If, you, if we kind mm -hmm. of take that baseline 
thought about it. Well, another one I was kind of surprised at were inflammatory rheumatologic conditions. How does diet play a role there? When I speak with patients, they'll sometimes even tell me when I eat more processed foods. And and they might say, when I eat more candy, when I eat more baked goods, when I eat more chips, things like that, I notice my arthritis flares. Comes back to the idea of not only what we eat, but what we limit in our diet. So it's, it's not to say we won't ever have those things, but I think limiting added sugars, added salts is important, as well as, again, in inflammatory type diseases, having, again, those antioxidants present to, again, be protective and reduce, you know, when we think of those, you know, arthritis and things or gout being more mm-hmm. inflammatory processes, Sure, um, having those antioxidants might be helpful. Okay. Most of my patients are elderly. Is it too late for them to make any diet changes that are going to be helpful to them? No, I don't think it's ever too late. As many things, routines and habits are well ingrained. I fully acknowledge that making changes to diet can be a challenge and it takes effort. However, I think we all can recognize that we all, we go through phases in life. And as we go through phases, we'll have different motivations. Capitalizing on those motivations and what we want out of the quality of our years can be really empowering. So from that perspective, what I find is as people gain years, they gain experience into their own behaviors around eating. And I think that's a key. You know, they understand themselves and they have motivations now to have better quality of life. Mm -hmm. And so I think they can put those two things together. And yes, it's going to be harder to move the scale because we just know that as bodies change with age, but it can be very empowering to eat well and to move and to do things that empower your sense of well-being, to know you're doing things to keep you well. And I think, and hopefully they can see, again, benefit in terms of just how they feel. The biggest challenge I have with my patients is getting them to change their diet. I mean, something they've been doing for 65, 75 years, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to get them to change. So do we need to have them make huge changes? I mean, do they need to become vegetarians or do even small changes give them some benefit? Oh, I definitely think there's benefits to small changes. And in in fact, I think that's the way to start because change is difficult. I will often take the approach with my patients of what can we tweak? Can Mm -hmm. we add a vegetable? Can we add another serving of fruit? And if we put more of that on the plate, could it crowd out the space and could we have a smaller portion? of the meat or something else on the other side of the plate. Not Mm -hmm. to say that those things are, they have a place in our diet. It's not that they don't, but I think it's often the proportion is off. We have an imbalance there in terms of how we structure the meal. I think any change we can, again, make that creates a shift. Mm -hmm. And I think if it's realistic and possible, it doesn't feel large and sweeping. Most people can do things for a short period of time, but they're going to revert back to their old behaviors. This way, I think it allows them to test and and continue and to, again, not only have the motivation, but to 
the continued motivation of I can do this because it doesn't seem too different than my norm. Yeah. Well, Kate, you've given us some really important nutritional information. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points? Sure. So I think one thing that patients often come to me with is the idea that they read or hear something and that nutrition is very complex. And not to say that there aren't complexities within nutrition and how our body uses nutrition in those things, because I think we're still gaining so much understanding of that. However, I think it still comes back to the basics, things that we learned years ago, the basic food groups, eat your fruits, eat your vegetables, have some protein-rich foods like fish or lean meat. It's okay to have dairy. It's a good source of many nutrients have some fat, but not too much, and have some starch. It's okay to have a potato. So many people are afraid to eat a a baked potato. I just say, keep the skin on it. It really matters what we do to the potato more than anything. We take the skin off and we put it in oil or we put lots of Mm -hmm. things on top of it. It's, It's more about let's treat the potato well. And I think then portion control. So what we eat, how much we eat, Certainly people don't need to be walking around hungry and cranky. And that's where I think if you're hungry, fruits and vegetables are a great way to satisfy hunger. So it gives you an opportunity to eat more fruits and vegetables to satisfy that. And then I think the idea of enjoying food, I think sometimes when people are thinking about making changes to their diet, they feel like I'm not going to be able to eat the foods that I like or this diet is going to be bland and boring. And it need not be. Good food can taste good too. And so I think it's having that open mind to trying some new foods. If you have led most of your life avoiding certain vegetables because at one time you didn't like them, you might find that your taste changes. And so or maybe if it's prepared in a different way, it might Mm -hmm. be acceptable. So I think it comes back to the basics, eat your food groups or versions of them if you're leaning kind of more vegetarian. But if you want to include some fish and meat, they can be part of a healthy diet. All foods can. There's even an allowance for some sweet. It's just, again, how much? It's about 10% of, of your calories or maybe around 100 calories. So that's a small little bit of chocolate a day if you wanted it to be. So fewer donuts, more broccoli. There you go. We've been discussing the role of nutrition in lowering the risk and managing chronic disease with registered dietitian Catherine Zaratsky from the Mayo Clinic. Kate, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.